and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And today we are not joined by Fry, but we are joined by Neil from the War and Conquest podcast. Hello, Neil. Don't believe her. This is Fry. <laughs> My voice has gotten significantly deeper. Traumatic week, apparently. Vocal cord cancer. <laughs> so, so Neil, tell us a little bit about your show and, and what you do. It's called War and Conquest. What it's about is is kind of in the name. I really spelled that one out for you. It's about (laughs) ancient and medieval history and essentially the rise of Western civilization through political and military confrontations. I try to stay as accurate as possible while it's remaining loose. You know, I put in memes, jokes, pop culture references, and the tagline of the show is attempting to make history fun again, which I do most of the time. Perfect. And that's generally what we try to do, too. We are full of memes. I mean, I definitely remember a moment where Fry said dicks out for celibacy, and that's become a tagline of our show. So you're joining us today because we're going to talk a little bit more about Pope Hadrian. We're going to talk about Charlemagne. We're going to get the Carolingian perspective on why this whole thing comes together the way it does with the Papal States and the imperial relationship with the papal states and the pope having lasting, lasting consequences for all of Western civilization. So why don't we just jump right into it? Because we've already covered Pope Hadrian. We've covered his perspective as we go through this period in history. So why don't you tell us about Charlemagne? What is Charlemagne's perspective in dealing with Francia. Where is he? How is he solidifying his power? What is going on there? All right. So full disclosure, I know earlier in the week, I asked you to send me the file so I knew what you guys had done already. But (laughs) it's been a bit of a rough week at work. And I've been sleeping when I'm usually researching. So I didn't listen to it. So I'm just going to guess on the things you guys talked about. We We may have some crossover. But uh, maybe it was a week ago. You might have forgotten since then, or <laughs> however long between these two episodes. So essentially, I'm going to try to tell the story of Hadrian and Charlemagne's relationship in three main incidents. The War of 773 and 4 against the Lombards and Desiderius. Another Italian war, because there's like 10 Italian wars in Charlemagne's reign, between the Beneventans and Charlemagne and the trial of Duke Tassilo of Bavaria, all of which Hadrian was a, if not central figure, a major player in the games that were going around between the Papal States, the Lombards, and the Carolingian Franks. So really to understand Hadrian's role, we have to come to terms with the fact that Hadrian is not what we would consider a first-rate leader. I mean, I know every historical figure that tries to make it into the history books is all about they want to be number one. Like, we want to be the most important. But the fact is, sometimes being number two is okay. And I believe that Hadrian understood that role better than most people, where most rulers or leaders would have tried to blaze their own trail, saying, I'm going to be a significant pope all by myself. Hadrian realized that sometimes it's easier to just hang on to the coattails and reap the benefits of a more powerful friend. Particularly when that powerful friend can protect you from invasion. Yeah, I I I was thinking a lot this week about Agrippa. 
mm-hmm. Octavian and later Augustus's best friend who was with him throughout his entire reign. And despite the fact that Agrippa probably could have been ruler of Rome by himself by nature of his organizational and military talent, no matter what he did, he always made sure that his friend Octavian, later Augustus, always got the credit for it. And they formed a mutual partnership that ushered in the greatest days of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And so Hadrian, in a way, was the Agrippa to Charlemagne, although not in the... Not in the military sense. <laughs> yeah, because Charlemagne was perfectly capable of winning his own battles. And I don't think Hadrian ever set foot on the battlefield. He's definitely, uh, he's no Pope Alexander VI or Pope Julius. <laughs> no. Although he did, he is like them in one way. He picked a really cool Pope name. You know, he's not like one of those lame Popes, like Pius or, you know, one of those other like flowery names. He decided to pull his name from one of the greatest emperors in Roman history. So he had, he at least has that connection with guys like Alexander and Julius II. To really understand the... Lombard War. I don't know how much of the Lombard War you guys covered in your initial show. Primarily, we cover the threat of Desiderius because, as we know, Desiderius, for whatever reason, for many, many different reasons, was very, very intent on invading the Papal States and absorbing that into his Lombard kingdom at any cost to the popes. Okay, perfect, because then we get to go through the entire build up to the Frankish invasion then. Great. Okay, so to start this all off, we have to understand the relationship between Charlemagne, who at this point was just Charles, and Carloman. I know you mentioned them briefly in your mm-hmm. Stephen the Second episode, how they were brothers and eventually Carloman dies. But before that happens, there were a few significant events. Namely, their mother had gone down to negotiate with the Pope, and on the way back, she had picked up a Lombard bride, one of the daughters of Desiderius, we don't have mm-hmm. her real name, but most historians just call her Desideria because of the unoriginality in naming women back in those days. And delivered her to Charlemagne's court to be married, cementing the alliance between the Lombards and the Franks. But for some reason or another, Charlemagne gets bored of his new bride and ships her back to Lombardy a year later. The official uh, cause was that she couldn't have children, but... There are some who say that she was actually pregnant when she arrived back home and she delivered Charlemagne's baby and then died in childbirth. Becomes a Carolingian phrase that they love to use. You know, you can't give me a baby, so we're done. That happens so often throughout the Carolingians. This really becomes a prominent theme for them. Well, I mean, it's like world history in general. I mean, (laughs) women are baby makers throughout the majority, well, from the entirety of human existence, I mean, technically speaking, women are baby makers, but they're definitely seen more as that's one of their few roles in society for mm-hmm. the majority of human history before feminism. So uh, anyway, the important thing to remember here is that when Charlemagne is shipping his bride back to Lombardy, Carloman is dying, a young man. He has some sort of health issue or he's possibly poisoned. We don't really know. One way or another, young King Carloman, who rules the entire southern half of the Frankish Empire because of the terrible habit of the Teutonic peoples of splitting inheritances between two sons, or however many sons you have. I mean, it's okay if you're a peasant farmer and you got two fields. All right, my oldest takes one, the youngest takes another. But if you have a large multi-ethnic empire, 
all of a sudden, splitting everything up after death is just a recipe for civil war and infighting. Every time. Pippin, Charlemagne's father, had gotten lucky because his brother Carloman decided to become a monk, just essentially giving his brother his half of the kingdom. And Charlemagne had gotten lucky because his brother dropped dead two years into his reign. And because <laughs> the Franks are a Teutonic people, they believed in the election of kings. And so the southern Frankish lords come all together. Charlemagne is not invited because he's a northern Frankish king. But Charlemagne decides to crash the party and show up anyway. As you do. Yeah. You know, if you want to seize power, that's the best way to do it. Abruptly. So he shows up and the lords are trying to elevate Carloman's infant son to the throne. And Charlemagne essentially lays out the, the lay of the geopolitical scene. The Aquitanians to the southern Frankish west have just been conquered and are on the verge of rebelling again, so they may have to fight them in the future. Tassilo and the Bavarians to the east have been mouthing off recently, especially because Charlemagne just divorced his Lombard bride because Tassilo was married to another daughter of Desiderius. And now Charlemagne drops the bomb that, oh, by the way, I just divorced Desiderius' daughter, and they are more than likely going to invade France now. And even though they're going to come to after me to try to kill me, they're going to have to march through your territory to do it. So he's like, you guys are going to be invaded by someone in the next year. And this infant ruler cannot lead your men on the field of battle. Babies tend to make terrible generals because they're more, they probably just stick their sword or spear in their mouth and chew on it rather than actually pointing to people and telling them where to go. Especially <laughs> because they also cannot speak. That's another impediment to being a firm commander on the battlefield. You know, even the worst commanders in history knew how to speak. <laughs> so, for obvious reasons, Charlemagne says, you can't elect the baby, he can't do anything, and then he just sort of walks out. And eventually the southern Frankish lords begin to see the wisdom in his views and decides to elect him the ruler of all of Franconia, which at this time period is most of modern-day France and eastern Germany. Or Western Germany. Sorry, I get my directions mixed up there. And this whole thing, how I just described it, may not have been the actual scenario. Like, I sort of made Charlemagne seem like the Machiavellian, oh, I'm going to divorce the Lombard bride, forcing the southern Frankish lords to start a war. But it may have just been Charlemagne was bored and horny and young, and he didn't like his bride, so he sent her back to her father. He liked to do that. I would believe that one. He has like nine or ten wives and a bunch of concubines throughout his life. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, despite all the good he did for Christendom, supposedly one of like the major bishops at the time saw a vision of Charlemagne in hell having his privates gnawed by a dragon because he was was bad and he was very uh, polygamous throughout his life. How Dante of him. Yes. You know, I may, maybe he's still down there. Maybe he, <laughs> he finally worked his way into purgatory, or I don't know how this whole Catholic thing works, to be honest. Um, so, Or if that he was just the one pope, or not pope, the one bishop was just uh, hallucinating. Either or. So anyway, so now Charlemagne has his cause for war. He has the entire kingdom united, and he begins to march south because he knows that sooner or later Desiderius is going to march north. And then mm -hmm. we have Hadrian off to the sidelines, both assuaging and instigating both on. You know, Hadrian right now is like the man with no name in all those Sergei Leone spaghetti westerns. 
You know, he's there playing all sides against the middle. Nobody trusts each other. And he's trying to move the chessboard pieces to where he wants them, despite the fact that he actually doesn't have a significant military force to contend with either of his rivals. Honestly, the way that he wants this to go is he wants it to be a bloody stalemate. He wants Charlemagne and Desiderius to fight each other, tire each other out, and then he can swoop in being the paragon of peace, you know, kind of like the U.S. does in the Middle East now. You know, we, we bomb the crap out of them and then pretend to be the good guys. This is what he wants to do. He wants to, to bring peace in, well, not the Middle East, but the northern Italy. Yeah, it's not as catchy. Which would benefit him tremendously, because at this point, there is a real concern on the side of the papacy that if the Lombards and the Franks continue their alliance, the fact that the Lombards are continually aggressive against the papal states makes it seem like that traditional obligation to protect the papal states on behalf of like the Franks doing that for the papal states, that this becomes something that is is too much work. It becomes too high a price for the alliance. So if they are at a stalemate with each other, it benefits the papal states because they no longer look like the lame party that is not pulling their weight. Well, actually, Hadrian actually fires off several letters at Charlemagne when he first hears about his marriage to his Lombard bride. Oh, yes. It's full of, like, border... Well, not even borderline, like, fully racist things. He, like, describes the Lombards as essentially, like, subhumans. Like, oh, you shouldn't marry a non-Frankish person. Mm -hmm. And whether that had anything to do with Charlemagne's dismissal of his wife, we don't know. But, I mean, it's possible. But it's just one of those really funny, like, papal letters where you just, like, imagine him just stamping his feet and, like, throwing things around the Lateran Palace. Pope Stephen's level letters were very much that way as well. They're oh, yes. very, very um, charged. Yes, they're very, very, very interesting reading to be sure. Both of those guys could definitely write a tirade. <laughs> you should hire them. Well, obviously we can't hire them now, but like to write comebacks to like bad reviews on the show. It's like you get a one star. It's like sick the popes on them to write a really, uh, really cutting rebuttal of their remarks. <laughs> Worst case scenario for Hadrian here is if the Lombards win, because then he has absolutely no protection and he's mm-hmm. exposed for having brought in outside help. The, the middle scenario is the one that actually happens in history, that Charlemagne wins the war. But like, like we said, the, the best way is a stalemate in which he can mediate and carve out some territory for himself. Yes. But unfortunately for him that wouldn't happen because Charlemagne was one of the great military figures of the age and Desiderius was absolutely no match for Charlemagne's invasion force Mm -hmm. despite having the Alps blocked Charlemagne finds a way around and outflanks Desiderius and well he doesn't destroy the army the army never fights it just sort of fades away back to their own towns Mm -hmm. although according to the papal sources it was the hand of God came down and filled the Lombards with fear. Like that one story in the Old Testament where the army facing the Israelites, the hand of God comes down and they all kill each other that night and there's no army left by the time the, for the battle the next morning. Miracles. Very reminiscent of that story. But <laughs> Charlemagne accomplishing the miracle of simply outmaneuvering his opponent forces Desiderius into Pavia. Charlemagne besieges Pavia and then begins breaking off the pieces of the Lombard kingdom by usually going to these different regions and threatening the lords that he'll do the same to them if they don't surrender to him. And many of these lords begin to break off and make beneficial deals. 
Because despite the fact that they have no standing army to defend their cities, many of these Lombards are squatting in Roman cities. And if there's mm-hmm. one thing the Romans did well, it was build city fortifications. I mean, look at the Theodosian walls. They lasted for over a thousand years until literally the, the largest cannon in human history up until that point was made to break them down. <laughs> So they just sat behind their walls and said, yeah, you could besiege us for a year like you did to Pavia, but it would be easier to just allow us into the fold. And for the nine times out of ten, Charlemagne would just do that. And Mm -hmm. he conquers the Lombards almost bloodlessly. I mean, except for the people that were starving in Pavia. But, I mean, technically speaking, he didn't shed their blood. He just didn't let them eat for a year. So six of one, half dozen of another, I guess. Same, same. But while Charlemagne is doing this, Hadrian is playing Charlemagne's game as well. While Charlemagne's running around in the north trying to get all these Lombard territories to submit, Hadrian's playing the same game in the south, saying, Ooh, you can come over to me. I'm not trying to conquer you. You can join the Papal States, or at least swear to be my ally, and I'll keep you safe from the big nasty barbarian from the north. And eventually Charlemagne catches on to his game and just shows up one day, a few days before Christmas at the end of 773, mm-hmm. and just terrifies everyone. This is like must have been what their ancestors had felt when Alaric and his Goths showed up outside of Rome. Nobody <laughs> knew what Charlemagne was going to do. Was he going to burn the city? Was he going to kill the Pope? What was going on? But it turns out Charlemagne was just there to sightsee. He wanted to see all the different Roman monuments and the Colosseum and the Hippodrome and all those other fun sites and talk to the Pope about the future of their alliance. Take in a mass wherever it's convenient to make yourself be seen. I mean, you don't visit the Pope and then not go to mass. (laughs) That's the whole point of going to see the Pope if you're not going to pray with him. Absolutely. So eventually after these two weeks, Charlemagne essentially confirms both the donation of Constantine and Pippin, and actually adds a little bit of territory in which he had absolutely no right to bestow. Like one Mm -hmm. of the things in Charlemagne's letter is Corsica. Or is it Sardinia? It's one of those Italian islands, which mm-hmm. Charlemagne never visited or never would visit and had no authority to give him. The Pope was like, that's mine. Essentially, like the Spanish colonizers when they came to America and they just like put the flag down and said, all of the Western Hemisphere is now ours. And mm-hmm. everyone else was like, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Charlemagne and Hadrian begin their path of mutual cooperation here. You know, Hadrian realizes he's not going to be able to game Charlemagne anymore. He could just appear back outside the city someday and say, uh, it's mine now. So Hadrian decides in the future, it's time to play nice with Charlemagne because he's almost unstoppable. I mean, if you consider Charlemagne's military campaigns throughout his years, he fought the Iberian Moors. The Saxons, not just one tribe, literally all of Saxony and conquered it. He fought the Lombards, the Avars, the Byzantines, Mm -hmm. the Frisians, the Danes. Like he fought pretty much everybody that was there to fight in Europe and won almost every war. And especially when you consider that a people like the Avars is the reason that the Lombards were in Italy in the first place. Yeah, the Lombards fled the Avars. And then after he beats the the Lombards, a couple decades later, he goes and just beats the crap out of the Avars as well. Mm-hmm. Which was a pretty amazing feat considering the Franks were predominantly infantry-based beating a cavalry archer civilization, which is one of the rare times in history that has ever worked for anybody. <laughs> that just shows you how much the Charlemagne 
had God on his side as he conquered the filthy pagans. Uh, Big point there. God on your side. Yes. Which brings us to one of the less talked about aspects of Hadrian's life. Because Hadrian is a political animal. I mean, before becoming a pope, he was part of the Roman aristocracy. He was very plugged into political events. And he did a lot of political maneuvering. Mm -hmm. But we kind of almost skip over the theological side of it. But Hadrian had a big burden uh, for of theology as well, because you're getting entire countries like Saxony and Avaria, who are vehemently pagan, who have now accepted the cross and salvation and baptism. And how do we deal with all these new people who have absolutely no idea who Jesus is? And why is this priest dunking me in water and trying to drown me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially considering most of these... Saxons especially would get baptized and like the next day the priest would catch them worshiping Woden again and he would baptize. Like some of these Saxons were getting baptized more than they were bathing. Like that just became like their (laughs) weekly bath. It's like, oh, the priest caught me worshiping Woden again. Time for another dunk in the water. Hopefully you stay stay baptized this time. So there was a lot of tricky theological questions like, well... You're baptized once, you're supposed to be the Catholic now. What, what, what happens if you do it ten times? Is it like a double negative? Do they cancel out? We have to have a prime number of baptisms? Like, what, what is the formula here? And that was one of the things that Hadrian and Charlemagne had to figure out together. Absolutely. I mean, Christianizing the world by the sword really became a, a thing in this area. I mean, because... Mm-hmm. Most of the Christian world at this point had been part of the Roman Empire, which had been conquered years ago. I mean, there had been a few territories here and there who had accepted Christendom, like peoples like the Goths, but they had just sort of naturally assimilated it over the years. The Saxons and the Avars were some of the first peoples who got Christianized by the sword. They, they were This was the prototype run, and both these great figures had to figure out what were the rules, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it started out, the Saxon Wars are a, a brutal 40-year war between the Saxons and Franks, where the initial, Charlemagne's initial reaction is like, well, we're just going to kill everybody if who worships Woden. He's like, if you get baptized and we catch you again at strike three, we're just going to execute you. And then he realizes, like, that's, they're killing way too many people. So he's like, all right, maybe we'll just give you a fine if we catch you worshiping Woden now. So mm-hmm. that whole odyssey is, I mean, that's almost a, an entire another podcast right there. Is it the Christianization of the Saxons and how somehow a century after their conquest, they're ruling the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> One of the great comeback stories in history. Absolutely. But uh, anyway, to get back to, to sort of draw back in before we veer too far off into left field there. The next time that Charlemagne and Hadrian would really have to flex their political muscle would be in what's known as the Beneventan Wars, which takes place in Benevento, which is southern Italy. It's a very old region of Italy. And a traditionally problematic duke, always. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Benevento has been around since, like, the Pyrrhic Wars in, like, the 300s BC. Mm-hmm. All they did is change a couple letters. It went from Beneventum to Benevento. So it's one of those really conveniently named cities that just sort of just stayed the same name almost throughout its entire history. So I, I like cities like that where you don't have to just keep like retranslating into like four different languages. Just mm-hmm. Benevento. <laughs> so the Beneventans are really staunch Lombards, as are many of the other Lombards in Italy, which is part of the problem here. Is because Charlemagne goes in and technically speaking, 
After he captures Desiderius and most of his family and has them all thrown into monasteries and nunneries, he owns Italy, but many of these lords are just still acting like they always did. You know, the, the king, mm-hmm. the king's decrees are more of a suggestion than anything. Yeah. And part of the problem for this is the cultural differences between Lombards and Franks. I mean, they're both northern peoples, but their, their cultures don't perfectly align. But another problem is the fact that Charlemagne and the later Carolingians are a new monarchy. And there's a bunch of problems that come in with new monarchies. Because mm-hmm. Pippin was the first of the, well, at that point, it's no, they're known as the Anulfings. After Charlemagne, they become the Carolingians, but it's easier to just call them the Carolingians. Mm-hmm. When the Carolingians first rise, Pippin needs the Pope's support to essentially confirm his coronation. And Charlemagne would also need Hadrian to help legitimize him. See, yes. I use this analogy in the Visigoths episode that I did, and I, I'm just going to reuse it because it's effective. Essentially, when one lord becomes a king after usurping power, it's like if you had a group of friends, so you guys grew up together every Friday night, it's bar night or, you know, whatever. You all have your activities to do, your traditions. And then all of a sudden, one of your friends becomes famous. You know, they become like a movie star or an artist or an Instagram influencer, you know, whatever fame is these days. A famous podcaster. That, that's really a thing. I don't, I don't even know if that's actually a... <laughs> Oh, yeah, sure. We can be famous podcasters with those sweet, sweet podcast dollars. Yes, everybody wants to hear about our pod. We're like vegans. You know, everybody's got to know, you know, (laughs) I have a podcast. Anyway, (laughs) so it's like one of your friends becomes famous and then you're sitting around on your usual Friday night activities like, oh, look at so-and-so out there dating movie stars and doing loads of cocaine. I remember back when they would get drunk off mimosas and trip over bar stools trying to hit on someone at the end of the bar there. Remember that time they puked on their 21st birthday? (laughs) And aristocracies are like that because these lords remember what it was like before this person usurped power. And so in the back of their minds, they're saying, well, if they could do it, so can I. Mm -hmm. And it's not until a few generations down the road where everybody who was part of the revolution dies off and the allure of the kingly name becomes solidified. You know, the, the annul things surplanted the Merovings, who, despite the fact that they were terrible rulers for most of their reign, were a dynasty that stretched back about 600 years. Yeah. You know, their lineage, they were spawned by mermaids or other sea creatures. And despite the fact that it's ridiculous, it was still your standard Frankish school curriculum. You know, mm-hmm. people are still like, oh, well, this monarch is superhuman. You know, his, his ancestors was Ariel the mermaid and what the, the prince in that movie. I don't Eric. <laughs> is it is it really Eric? I thought it was something. It is. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I'm a hardcore Disney fan. <laughs> I got you. Eric. I, somehow I knew that. Like I don't I don't know you that just like I don't know, you gave me gave off that vibe. Anyway, so Ariel and Eric founded the Merovingian dynasty. Historical fact of the day. Boom. Mm-hmm. Snapple fact time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so after supplanting the Mer people, they had to build up their own legacy. And since Charlemagne was a first-generation monarch, he needed Hadrian's support of the papacy in order to do that. You know, maybe he is just another lord like him, but if the Pope is backing him, we have to fear things like excommunication for opposing him. Maybe it's better to just go along with the official rule. Moral legitimacy. Yes. Or the fact that if you rebel, Charlemagne may actually have your eyes ripped out and then 
you have to spend the rest of your life roaming the country as a vagabond. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. happened a couple times. So, so many times. Excommunication, spend your life in a monastery, or have your eyes ripped out. Or all three. You never know. Actually, it would mm-hmm. be kind of weird if you were working in a monastery and were excommunicated. So I guess you got to pick one of the two. You can <laughs> be blind and do both. Yes, you can be blind and do both. <laughs> so it's pick two out of the three. Where this would really come into effect would be a little bit later. Actually, I kind of went out of order. So we're going to do the... Now nah, we'll stick to we'll stick to Benevento. Mm-hmm. I, I made my points out of order there. All right. So the Beneventan War starts because the Beneventans don't want to be part of the Frankish Empire anymore. They're like, you know mm-hmm. what? We can we're dukes and we can be kings and princes now. We don't need Charlemagne's help. They have notoriously wanted to be autonomous the entire time, even throughout the the Lombard Kingdom. So this was just another traditional move to not want to be part of something. Par for the course, those dirty, chiseling Beneventans. (laughs) Yep. It's a stereotype that exists to this day Mm. in my head that I just made up. I don't think that's actually... How crazy would it be if that actually was a stereotype? Like, if Italian people are like, yeah, those Beneventans, (laughs) you can't trust them. (laughs) (laughs) It would would have to apply for Spoleto as well, so, you know, stretch. Well, they're neighbors, so there's a lot of... I imagine there's a lot of cross-mingling, you know. It's a Mm. very similar culture. Anyway, um, so the Beneventans are immediately invaded by Charlemagne. Like, he just puts his foot down on this revolt, like, immediately after it starts. Well, first he captures the Prince Grimmawald and has him as a captive and as a the little hostage situation they had going on for a few months. And then his father, Arikius, or Adelkis, there's, there's two in this story. I, I always get the two confused. So mm. one of those one of those guys both figuratively and literally loses the heart for the campaign. First, he flees his capital and tries to get away to Taranto to flee over to uh, Constantinople, where the Frankish court in exile was. But he literally loses heart and has a heart attack on the way and dies. So the kingdom of Benevento is left without a duke. And it's up to Charlemagne to figure out whether he puts in his own puppet ruler or he sends Grimmauld back for his family inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so Hadrian's like, listen, you can't do this. Like, as soon as Grimmauld goes back there, he's going to start a rebellion against you. And in one of the few times that Hadrian's advice is not taken by Charlemagne, he decides to send a few of his messengers and diplomats throughout Benevento to find the truth of the matter. And he sends a man named Maginar, which... I don't know. It sounds like the name of a Pokemon to me, but <laughs> it does. I don't know. I, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Actually, when I first started researching this again, I opened up my uh, King and Emperor book by Janet Nelson, which just a little side note. If you're looking for a book on this period, it's hard to do better than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Good book. I had this uh, this passage bookmarked from my previous series I did on, did on Charlemagne. And there it was. Like, as soon as I saw Maginar's name, I just started chuckling to myself again because it just brought it all back. So Maginar, he gets a less than hospitable reception, you could say. Whether the city elders are just straight up closing their gates to these messengers or they're actively laying ambushes for them. The point is, Maginar in his letter to both Hadrian and Charlemagne is, the Beneventans are not happy. They want their prince back. Which Hadrian's Mm -hmm. like, yeah. They're not happy, and when they get their prince back, they're going to rebel. But Charlemagne decides to go his own path and go against the conventional wisdom of the time. 
Because 9 out of 10 times, Hadrian's right. You don't send the revolutionary back to his people. It would be mm-hmm. like if the, the white Russians had captured Lenin and they just sent him back to the Reds. Like, oh, you can have him back now. Like, the, the mm-hmm. revolution is going to continue. But whether Charlemagne knew, or I imagine Charlemagne knew more about the situation than we did, but whether he got the impression that Grimmauld was a trustworthy guy or not, he decides to, for once, ignore Hadrian and send him back. And it turns out to be that one out of ten times in which Grimmauld actually turns into one of the firmest allies of Charlemagne in Italy. Hmm. Actually helping defeat the Byzantine invasions. Because the Byzantines still hadn't quite gotten over the whole loss of the Exarchate a few decades previously, and had decided to finally sink their hooks back into Italy. So they send Desiderius' final remaining son. Well, he still had a couple other sons, but they were all monks, so they couldn't do anything. He's yeah. the last one in power to reinvade southern Italy, and it's immediately beaten back by Grimmauld and a bunch of Franks. And he beats them so bad, he actually improves diplomatic relations with Byzantium. Because after that, they're like, you know what? <laughs> this Charlemagne guy is not to be messed around with. And Irene actually gets over being butthurt about the cancellation of the marriage between her son and Charlemagne's daughter. Mm-hmm. And relations improve, and they walk hand in hand into the sunset forever. And the Roman Empire never falls. Just kidding. It falls. <laughs> repeatedly. Repeatedly. Yes. That would that actually is like one of the really alt- interesting alternate history takes on this because mm, if yeah. Irene had ma- successfully married off Constantine, I think we're at like seven or one of the cons, her son Constantine the Emperor, who she's ruling for regent as, was Charlemagne. The sixth, yeah. It was it the sixth? Okay, I knew there was yeah. a V in there somewhere. I couldn't remember if it was the fourteenth <laughs> or the sixth. Uh, if they had married, that would have essentially reunited the Northern Roman Empire. Yes, because you have you have Gaul, northern Spain, Italy, uh, the Balkans, and the territories that the Byzantines control, and that would have been—I mean, who knows how long that alliance would have lasted? But had that marriage actually been brokered, we would likely be living in a very different historical world than the one we have now. Absolutely. But Hadrian doesn't have anything to do with that, so we're just going to move on. <laughs> so the point was that, despite the fact that. They had a very close relationship, Charlemagne and Hadrian, and Charlemagne oftentimes saw Hadrian as a father or brother figure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he doesn't take his advice because, you know, even the greatest diplomat gets things wrong every now and again. And that becomes a point of tension in their relationship throughout. So it's, it's a very important note to make that despite how close and the personal relationship that was established between the two, it wasn't an absolute at all times. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, they were, I mean, Hadrian is pope for most of Charlemagne's reign. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's a pope when Charlemagne takes the throne up until he dies in the 90s. I mean, Charlemagne lives past Hadrian. Hadrian lived like to be in his 90s himself. So yes, yes. Very long papacy. Very old when he already became pope. (laughs) It's a long life, even in today's standards, let alone back in 8th century Italy. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially considering living in Rome, and people in Rome tend to die quicker because of the malarial <laughs> swamps outside the Ostia ports there that didn't get drained until Mussolini. Yep. <laughs> so at least there's there, there's your one your plus one for Mussolini historically. He finally drained the swamps that had been built up there, or and people have been talking about it in Italy since the Roman times. 
Well, and that's going to be a thing we're going to have to discuss because Mussolini is actually the the whole reason behind Vatican City as as a unique and individual and independent sovereign. So we're going to have to unfortunately plus one Mussolini yeah, a few more times in this plus podcast. Plus two. Uh oh, we're going to get bring it a bunch of reviews now. We're fascist apologists now. Uh, I'm sure a, we gave a fascist ruler a plus one on both sides. <laughs> Brace yourself. The review bombs are coming. Oh, I'm ready. By people who do not understand <laughs> diplomatic and historical subtlety and nuance. Bring it I hope I get one. I hope because I usually get at least one one star every joint episode I do. And I, it always gives me good <laughs> fodder to just lay out them or lay them out in a rant. So bring it on. Well, then you could have Hadrian to write your rant for you. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll definitely channel my inner Hadrian. <laughs> Might might not quite be as petulant, but it'll definitely be as as virulent. Anyway, so with Benevento secure, Charlemagne moves on to his the re, the last real joint effort between Hadrian and Charlemagne, and this is the point that I accidentally almost made earlier about Charlemagne using the Pope as his cudgel to deal with political enemies. Mm-hmm. Because Duke Tassilo is a problem. He has been a problem mm-hmm. since the very beginning of his life, really. He he got the Even Duke before. Ship. Yeah. I mean, his father was a pain, too, and had to be taught a lesson several times by Pippin. Mm-hmm. And now Charlemagne had to do the same thing. Because technically speaking on paper, the Bavarians are vassals of the Carolingians. They're supposed to mm-hmm. be there. But a lot of times, Tassilo does things like appoint bishops and sign his letters with the affectation princeps, which is sort of him angling for his own rule. On top of all of that, he has the last remaining in-power member of Desiderius' family. And no doubt, especially after watching most of her family get tossed into monasteries and being stripped of power and her brother dying on the battlefield in southern Italy, she was whispering in Tassilo's ear that, Something had to be done about this Charlemagne asshole. (laughs) But even if she hadn't been really whispering in his ear, the war between Charlemagne and Tassilo would have happened eventually. Like Charlemagne was one of those monarchs that didn't really tolerate anyone not saying that he was the rightful monarch of of a land. And there had been several times where relations had gotten to the edge of war and then it had been walked back like Hadrian had helped. Uh, form a peace council in 781 where Mm -hmm. a bunch of gifts and hostages were exchanged he was the guarantor for everybody's safety and everybody went home singing into the sunset but then four years later a northern italian frankish lord invades tassilo's territory and gets defeated in battle which brings us up to 787 in which the there's another conference in rome where diplomats come from both sides, and Hadrian essentially says, if Tassilo doesn't bend to the will of Charlemagne, there's going to be an anathema against him, and we might, we might possibly excommunicate him. Mm-hmm. Which the diplomats are like, we're in no way authorized to agree or disagree with any of this. You're going to have to talk to Tassilo. And Charlemagne just looks over at them and says, oh yeah, we're going to talk to Tassilo. <laughs> And a few months later, a three-pronged invasion of Bavaria begins, led by Charlemagne and his other sub-commanders, in which the Bavarians just, just give up. They, they have no fight in them. They're like, we're not going to try to fight the people who are in the midst of conquering half the European world right now. 
Although somehow Tassilo still stays in power. They're like, we're going to have a trial next year, but until then, you can just wander around the kingdom. <laughs> Tassilo wandered so much, he ended up in Avaria, contracting a barbarian warlord with 10,000 cavalry archers to invade his homeland because he needed an army to face off against Charles. Mm-hmm. This pissed Classic off the Bavarians. Technique. Yeah, this pissed off the Bavarians so much that they just overthrew Tassilo. They just handed him to Charlemagne in chains. Like, oh, by the way, we already had a trial and we gave him the death sentence. So we're just giving him here for you to execute. And Charlemagne's <laughs> like, well, he is my cousin. So it would be a little bit awkward at the family reunion if I just decapitated him here and or ripped out his eyes. So mm-hmm. off to the monastery you go, little Tassilo. And his wife, who probably or possibly helped instigate this war in the first place. You're as bad as your sister. <laughs> Maybe worse. I don't know. That would have been a, a nice little burn. <laughs> would right. it ever? I mean, especially because Charlemagne liked to like play practical jokes on people, at least from mm-hmm. the, the sources we have. So I can imagine him saying that. Like, yeah, <laughs> at least your sister didn't resist or something. Like some little like snide comment I imagine was said between Charlemagne and... And Charlemagne has a real petty streak, so I could absolutely get on board with that. Yes. And like I said, he tells jokes. Like there was a, <laughs> there's a story about a, a queen who was deposed in, I think it was Northumbria, someplace in one of the English kingdoms. And she comes over and she's like, yeah, I'll give you a choice. Do you want to marry me or my son? And she's like, well, I'll take your son because he's younger. And he's like, that's the wrong answer. If you had said you wanted to marry me, I would have helped you win your kingdom back. But because you're shallow and petty, you're not going to get anything. And this joke is preserved in English to the English because they thought it was absolutely hilarious. Then Charlemagne was like, I could have gotten you your kingdom back. But nope, that's what you get for being petty and shallow. Nice little moral lesson and history lesson combined into one, which is the favorite thing of Catholic teachers. Absolutely. We ended up uh, on in Hadrian's episode, we covered uh, the the incredible battle they had over who had better singers. And it just seems exactly right. Did you talk about him complaining about his horses? Not his horses. No, but we did definitely have the Romans referring to the Gallic beery throats not being able to sing quite as correctly. Well, there was a I forget. I think it's actually right before the uh, the Maginar incident. Hadrian sends a letter to Charlemagne because he was giving out gifts all over Italy and Hadrian's gift was two horses and his the one died along the way because it got sick and the other one is like well I guess I can't really find that many complaints about it. he says next time send me better horses or, or like I'm paraphrasing <laughs> but something to that like respect like, this guy's the Penny. most powerful man in Europe and it's like I want a better present next time for my birthday <laughs> that's Although, that's the pettiness of Charlemagne it's right there Yes. Well, this was Hadrian that was saying that. This was uh, the horses were a gift to Hadrian. But either way, oh, they were being I had it back. Petty back and forth. Mm, appropriate. <laughs> they, I feel like that's why they got along so well. I feel like they had like very similar like thought processes. Like you, mm, the mm-hmm. fact that you thought I was talking about Charlemagne just proves the point that they could. <laughs> they, their minds were very in sync. Exactly. So anyway, when Tassilo is tonsured. Bavaria is finally pulled into the fold. Charlemagne has effectively used Hadrian as his instrument to help him win a troublesome part of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the Bavarians would be part of the German Empire. Well, to this day, I mean, it's not an empire anymore, but Bavaria is still a part of Germany to this day. Mm-hmm. 
Although apparently they don't speak the ger- like German like the other Germans do. Like there's slightly different. Well, Germany is just a messed up language anyway because they speak like three or four different versions of Germans. Mm-hmm. So, but it's a little. If you didn't know that, if you know German and you go to certain parts of Germany, they won't understand you. High German, low German, and there's yes. at least one more. Yep, that's just the the confusing. But of course, if you look at German history, you understand why. Like if you look at a map of like the Holy Roman Empire and all the different kingdoms, like it's. It's surprising they all speak a language that's even vaguely similar to one another. Mm, that's for sure. But it wasn't that way back in Charlemagne's day because it was all united and it was all happy. And most of the groundwork for that was laid by Hadrian. And it was just Leo who swooped in after Hadrian's death and took all the credit for crowning Charlemagne Holy Roman Emperor. Mm, and he certainly jumped at the opportunity to be the one to do that. And you can see how the establishment of the relationship between Hadrian and Charlemagne certainly had that impact on Leo and how he definitely wanted to have his place within a similar structure. Well, it also probably helped that Leo was was literally running for his life from a a lynch mob who was trying to kill him. So, you know, maybe crowning the guy who's (laughs) supposed to be protecting you emperor of the world is the right play to help uh, guarantee your personal safety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hadrian didn't have to, to worry about the lynch mobs because he was very popular because very. he 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 built many uh, architectural improvements in Rome itself because Charlemagne was sending a lot of money into Rome every year. It was oh, one of what? his ways of rewarding him. You know, mm-hmm. maybe Charlemagne didn't send the best horses, but he did send <laughs> the best silver and gold. And Hadrian would did. use that to pay the papacy's debts. He would use it to help expand some of the churches. And he would really improve Rome to help at least bring back a little bit of the shine of the city that had been deteriorating for the past few centuries. Mm-hmm. That's Which for is sure. why many Romans, even if they disagreed with some of the things Hadrian did, were okay with him. And he stayed Pope for more than 20 years. I believe it was 24 mm-hmm. years he, re- he reigned at St. Peter's. Uh, let me double check. 25. It's something mid-20s. I know that for sure. Yeah, it's definitely up there. We have Tempus Pontificus was 23 years, 10 months, and 24 days. Yeah, so almost almost 20, because he died on Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he died on Christmas. That's a terrible Christmas present for the, the College of Cardinals. <laughs> well, you know, and that gives them a chance to uh, elect a new pope, and then it starts. And then they, they follow that up with the Christmas coronation of of Charlemagne, so... Yeah, well, it's Christmas and Easter. That's how everything is dated in medieval chronicles. It's either Christmas oh, or Easter. Is it ever? <laughs> well, and that brings us to a great point, talking about how Hadrian was able to improve Rome as a city and why he was so well accepted amongst the Romans and how well he was able to to have a relationship with Charlemagne. This brings us to a great point to talk about what initially inspired this collaboration because you approached me talking about how you felt that Hadrian was a very underrated pope. And so I'd love to hear how you would make an argument for him as to why he is com- why he is underrated. Well, he Hadrian was the he wasn't the originator of the idea of the papal states, but he was definitely mm-hmm. the one who shepherded it into being. I mean, Stephen was the one who convinced 
Pepin to come and give the donation, or essentially redo the donation of Constantine. But as you know, in this time period before Hadrian, you get a lot of really short-lived popes. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, like the, the, the previous Stephen didn't even get a chance to get named. You have a yes. bunch of popes who only have like two or three year tenures at most. And so there's no real concrete policy goals that can be achieved in that time period. Whereas mm-hmm. you have someone like Hadrian ruling almost 24 years. He could see it through. He could usher the papal states in. He could set up the rules and the different ways that these territories are governed. He can use the extra money to influence people and improve the cities within his control and allow it to be passed very safely over to Leo. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a mm-hmm. bit of a parallel between what we were talking about earlier about older monarchies, where mm-hmm. instead of having just a bunch of like really like flash in the pan popes, you have a long, steady papacy handing, just essentially handing over a list of things that need to get done, and most of the stuff is checked off already. Essentially allowing Leo to just be like, I crowned Charlemagne, so that makes me really important historically. (laughs) Even though had Hadrian lived another few years, he probably would have done the same thing himself. Absolutely. And Charlemagne would have asked for it at that point, despite whatever Einhardt says. I don't know. He said he didn't want it and he wouldn't have gone had he known that was going to happen. Oh, just wait till you hear Fry's reaction to that. (laughs) Yes. Well, Fry was dogging my boy Stephen II, so I don't know if I trust her opinion on popes sometimes. <laughs> so in on that note, we ended up, when we scored Hadrian, he ended up in, he's currently sitting in the top 10 of the popes that we have covered. He's in sixth place with a score of 44 points. He scored an 18 in Papatum and Phallium, a 0 in Fructus Prohibitum, a, a 19 in Seculare Impactum, we thought his face was all right, so he scored a one in Facium Sanctus. And, a, of course, for his long, long pontificate, he scored a six in Tempus Pontificus. He did, in fact, receive a papal bull. So do you think that we were fair to Pope Hadrian? Uh, how, like, what is, what is the, the scale for like the secular thing? Like, What is 19 out of what? 19 out of 20. Everything is out of 20. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's really, I mean, Hadrian is a secular pope. We don't really, of course, mm-hmm. I don't know if we just don't know or I just, because I mean, all the, the research material I have is Hadrian in conjunction to Charlemagne. So they're focusing yes. more on the political. Like, I don't really know the theological works of Hadrian. Primarily and, how he scores so well in Papatum and Phallium is the prestige attached to the papacy now as being able to to stand as one of the rulers at the time by being able to legitimize the papal states and yeah. by maintaining at least some resistance to Charlemagne, who also thought, by the way, that he was head bitch in charge when it came to the church. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the major thing that gives him so many points is the fact that he did it all with paper and pen or just in with in-person meetings. He wasn't like mm-hmm. an Alexander VI who had a Cesare Borgia to walk around Italy and beat up all the enemies of the papacy. Or he yes. wasn't like a Julius II <laughs> who could just go and do that himself, who thought he was mm-hmm. Julius Caesar <laughs> reincarnate and he was just going to fight on the battlefield like any other king or duke would. Mm-hmm. He does it all with paper and a pen or just giving messages to Charlemagne or his servants. There is a great deal of personal influence there. And it's hard to separate the two, really. I mean, Charlemagne mm-hmm. definitely was the dominant partner in this relationship. 
and he likely would have done okay without Hadrian's help. But it, it, as always, when it comes to trying to, to figure out the historical uh, web, you can't tell where pulling one strand is. Like if you remove one strand, how much of the web does that take out? Like mm-hmm. maybe it's maybe it's a minor thing, or maybe not having Hadrian make Charlemagne make a mistake here, or another few rebellions start here. Maybe people don't accept him because the Pope doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's so many different directions you can go. And these two are just so tightly wound together historically. I don't think you can really separate one or the other and hope to get out. I mean, obviously Charlemagne didn't need Hadrian as much as Hadrian Hadrian needs Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Yeah. I I mean, the biggest thing is the fact that Charlemagne conquered Lombardy. Like, he he permanently neutralizes the threat of the Lombards to the papacy by Mm -hmm. destroying the Lombard ability to be a threat, really. Absolutely. And if they were would rebel, they weren't rebelling against the papal states. They were rebelling against Charlemagne. So, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what those other words in Latin mean. So I, <laughs> I don't know what the other categories were. Well, for scandal, because we don't really have any information for him on scandal. Although maybe we should have given him a point for complaining about his birthday gift. Um, yes. his his face. We rate his portrait. He scored. A one, which we divide the score that they get out of four, so that it's not hugely impactful on their on their total outcome, because we don't want a pope scoring twenty points purely on what he looked like. So in the end, he is he's sitting right now at sixth place. So do you think that that's a fair place for a pope like Hadrian to be in? Uh, yeah. Actually, I can't believe you only gave him a one on look. I'm looking at this picture right now. That guy, <laughs> he could get it. Like, if he was not... Actually, this point... Uh, I don't know about popes, but I know, like, priests and bishops could get married, though. Like, he was probably batting them off in Rome. He's got that strong <laughs> well, he... jawline, the nice beard. When he was younger, he was probably... He was probably getting it younger if he wasn't... So, f- Fry scored him a one. I gave him a three out of 20. and then Or just out of general, we give them out of... 20 and so or out of 10 for this one we give a score oh, okay. out of 10 each so he i gave him a three out of 10 fry gave him a one out of 10 and then we divide that before so by four so he got a one so it's a pretty decent middling score i'm giving him a seven. His appearance. he's getting a, a seven, seven for attractiveness yes ah uh, you haven't seen a picture of pope caius <laughs> well i'm not saying he's the most attractive we're just if we're objectively scoring in a vacuum he's getting a seven for perfect me. So that will throw off Fry's math a little bit. Just another disagreement we have. <laughs> well, I mean, and, that, and that's why it works. Sometimes we are, well, we have violently different opinions about it. But a six, in sixth place, he is currently behind popes such as Pope Damasus, who has scored incredibly well for being the pope who has, who commissioned the Vulgate, the pope who established the books that would be in the Bible. He is also incredibly scandalous and incredibly impactful in Rome itself, he's behind Pope uh, Leo the First, so Leo the Great, Gregory the Great. He's behind our favorite uh, and very, very underrated Pope Honorius, who was later excommunicated as a heretic. So he's in good company at current. Did you guys do uh, Urban the Second yet? Not yet. No, he's oh, well, a ways ha- off still. I'll have to come back for that one. Because I'll, 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 def- I'll make sure Urban gets into the top 10, too, if it kills me. 
He is one of the contenders for potentially knocking Damasus off of first place. So we'll see how that goes when we get to him. <laughs> yeah, I'm that. Well, my fans know that I'm a big Urban fan because I literally I recreated one of his speeches. Like I mm. did. Like I redid the Council of Claremont speech that called for the Crusade. I mean, it was a Perfect. long time ago, and I probably would make it better today. But there was one of my better early episodes. He's definitely one of those popes that we're looking forward to covering. He's one of the big names as we go down the list, because we're going to get to a point where it's going to be a lot of Benedict the Tenths and you know, yeah. Pius the Fifths and so on and so forth. So Urban the Second is one of those ones that stands out among the list of yeah. Can't otherwise. wait for you to get to uh, Benedict the Sixteenth. That would be a scandalous <laughs> episode. I just, I just watched uh, Two Popes on Netflix the other night, too. And I have a lot of personal opinions about Benedict the Sixteenth, so that's going to be an interesting episode to to write and present. Of course, if you guys are going chronologically, by the time you get up to that point, it'll be far enough removed from like actual current events. It might not be as scandalous as if you did it like right now. It's true. It's true. But I, mean, I, I have I have a wealth of sources for <laughs> that episode already. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming and joining us and talking about Hadrian. Is there anything you want to to leave our listeners here with at the end? How they can find you? Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, started con- start a concerted email campaign now, guys, to get me on the Urban the Second episode. I want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it in the spreadsheet. You can uh, you can find me at warrenconquest.com or warrenconquestpcast at gmail.com or just look up my show War and Conquest on iTunes and I leave links to everything in the description below the episode. So you can just mm-hmm. unleash the power of the internet and click on the hyperlinks. I've got a, I'm on all three big social media things, the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, I usually post all the same stuff. It's almost always memes, occasionally show updates. <laughs> Almost never political stuff. So if you're one of those people like, oh, I don't follow this person's Twitter because they spend all day bashing me with their own political opinion instead of talking about history, that's not me. Except unless I get real meta and I make post making fun of such people. That's about as close <laughs> as I get to being political on Twitter. Yeah, it's a it's a good good strategy. Yes, I mean why why alienate uh, why alienate viewers? I mean if you don't have to, you're not here to talk about current events. If you're a current events podcast, yeah, do it. If you're a history podcast, talk about history. It's not yes, that hard. Let's, we're going to leave it all in the past. So That's a perfect place to wrap up. So thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.